Hey everyone, this is Sarah Chen Spellings. Welcome to another episode of Billion Dollar Moves, where every week it is my job to deconstruct the billion dollar moves of some of the top founders and funders in the US and Asia venture ecosystem. What typically got them from their journey of underestimated to iconic in the most raw and unfiltered form. You won't get this anywhere else. Due to popular requests, since many of my episodes I know are a little bit long, this season I'll be serving up recaps at the end of every month. It features my quick thoughts on the top three things that left an impression on me and a short clip from each conversation in one place so you can get a feel of both the episode and the guest and you can always dig deeper, which of course I highly recommend by going to the actual episodes themselves, which will be listed in the show notes. Now let's get started. All right, first up, Egyptian-American technologist Rana El Kaliobi, founder of Effectiva, an emotion AI startup that sold her company for $73.5 million last year. The top three lessons that left an impression on me were... Number one, decoupling your identity from your startup. Now, this is an interesting topic and one that I know I've struggled with being so career-focused in that I associated not just my identity, but my worth with how well I'm doing at work. Rana shares how hard that actually is when you spend so much of your life invested into an idea, building that up, and then, quote-unquote, giving away your baby. And I am going to be quite vulnerable in, in my answer to this. First of all, I felt a lot of guilt. I felt like I was giving in, you know, selling out on my baby, because Affectiva is like my baby. And, and what I've come to realize that it's, it's not selling out, it is graduating to a new chapter, right? My daughter, you know, just turned 18 and she just started college. And so we moved her into her dorm and, and I'm, I'm, I haven't given up on her. It's just a new form of our relationship, right? And, and I, and, you know, we exited at exactly the same time when she was graduating high school. And it's the same with Affectiva. We haven't sold out, but we are starting a new chapter for this journey. You know, Affectiva lives on and now we're part of this bigger company and we have more, you know, power to, to go make things happen. So that's kind of point number one, just kind of put it in perspective. I think that's really key. Second is be kind to yourself, right? I don't know that I'm totally burnt out because I love what I do, but a big part of me was thinking about the opportunity cost as well, right? Like I want to do a lot of other things. I want to serve on boards. I want to help young founders, young as in early in their journey, help them, you know, find their path and support them, especially overlooked founders. This gave me an opportunity to, I guess, free up some of my brain cycles and my time to explore some of these other venues. Lesson number two, don't be afraid to outgrow your dreams. While Rana's biggest dream was to become a professor, the tide changed quickly. Her research at MIT on emotional AI with global thought leader Ross Picard on affective computing caught commercial attention from big names long before it was commercial ready. She saw how transformative this technology could be at scale. AI that understands human emotion or cognitive states by analyzing our facial expressions. How cool is that? She knew she would regret not at least trying to see this vision through. Do the thing that scares you. So, so you know, I always talk about outgrowing your dreams because to me, it was very interesting. My dream was to go back home and become faculty. But once I got to Cambridge and then built this emotionally intelligent machine and actually towards the end of my PhD, again, very serendipitously met Ross Picard in person. She was visiting Cambridge, giving a talk and wanted to meet with some PhD students. And she and I met up and just totally hit it off. And she said, why don't you come work with me as a postdoc? And of course I was like, oh, this is like a dream come true. So, so I joined her lab as a postdoc, still thinking it's academia, but very quickly at MIT, 
it became apparent that there was so much commercial interest in the technology. And we had like at least 20 Fortune 500 companies wanting to buy, you know, our solution. And this was research code. So we didn't really have a mechanism to give it to the Pepsis of the world or the Bank of Americas. And so in 2009, she and I decided to co-found Affectiva. She stayed as an MIT professor and I basically kind of switched career from academia to industry and, and grew the company and, you know, finance, you know, brought in venture capitalists. And so it's, it's been, it's been an incredible, for me, actually, what was the tipping point of going from academia to industry was realizing I have a very perhaps unique opportunity to bring technology to the world at scale because academia is usually not at scale. And, and I felt like that could be, you know, quite transformative. Yeah. And it's, it's that thought, I, I think what you're speaking to, I've, I've heard many said before, is that the biggest fear, if, if that could be the right word, is that the missed opportunity of not bringing right. that to the world. Lesson number three, when accepting money, watch the power leverage. Not every check is made equal. Rana and her team took an investment from big ad player WPP, who also had a board seat. While it was strategic, of course, they agreed to an exclusivity term which meant that Affectiva could not work with their biggest competitors. 10 years on, after the check was written, this still remains the case. The message? Think carefully about who you bring on as investors and their agenda and their definition of success. Let me repeat that. Not every check is made equal. Boom. What was your strategy? And admittedly, before a, a big exit, many companies um, had raised a lot more than you have before that point of exit, right? Um, right. It was part of a decision. Talk to us about that strategy there. Yeah, it's definitely, you know, a consideration. For example, we have a combination of venture, you, you know, investors, but we also have strategic investors. And even that decision, when do you take strategic money versus venture money? That's like a big decision. When we raised around in 2011 when we turned that big, you know, $40 million check and instead focused on finding other investors. We took money in from WPP, their big advertising conglomerate, and they ended up being our biggest client and partner. So they are both an equity investor, but they're also very strategic. And they accelerated bringing our product to literally 90 countries around the world in less than six months. It was amazing from a business standpoint, but what I guess I underestimated when we took the money from them is that they had a lot of leverage over us, right? They were on our board. You know, there was some exclusivity in place, so we couldn't work with their biggest competitors. We still can't work with their biggest competitors 10 years on. So um, who you bring on as investors and their agenda and their definition of success, like our strategics don't care about valuation. They're not valuation sensitive at all, but they do care about the business partnership. Our venture investors very much care about dilution and valuation and, and, and all of that. And so it's, it's just a very different lens on the business. And knowing, you know, as a CEO or a founder that you will have different constituents with different agendas, that's really key because then you can, you can navigate it, I guess, and be more informed. Now hold that thought. Finding a service solution that helps you keep customers happy can feel impossible. Like trying to remember the name of that guy you literally just met at a networking event. HubSpot's all-new service hub can help. 
with their service solution part at least. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform. With an AI-powered help desk and chatbot to help you handle your frontline tickets. So you can scale support and drive retention and revenue. We love the sound of those things. Visit HubSpot.com service to learn more. Next up, Tiwa York. Tiwa York was brought in by the likes of Nespers and Tencent to clean up their e-commerce portfolio in Thailand, which resulted in the birth of Kaidi, Thailand's largest C2C marketplace at their peak, serving 35 million users who listed close to 10 million products across 250 categories from automotive to property for sales every year. The top three lessons that left an impression on me were... Number one, listen to what's unsaid to manage in Asia. I love this one. Early in his journey, Tiwa, who despite speaking and writing Thai, being half Thai, felt often frustrated by a team that was not cooperating with him. He was later told, Tiwa, you understand the words, but you don't understand the meaning. P.S. This was told by his very, very smart wife. He realized that while he understood the language and somewhat looked the part, being half Thai, of course, he did not actually understand Thailand. Foreigners operating in Asia often misunderstand that silence displayed by teams is either they don't know or they're idiots. Most of the time, by the way, they're smart, very smart, but culturally not willing to say it to you directly. Silence, so, stubbornness. Love it. Yeah. So they'll, they'll talk to me, they'll say certain words, but they'll be silent and stubborn. So, okay, boss, I understand what you want me to do. I disagree with you. Fine, I'll do mm -hmm. it if you make me do it. And I didn't understand that. And my wife was the one who said, Tiwa, tell me exactly what happened. Tell me exactly what they said. And I told her exactly what they said in Thai. And she goes, you didn't understand what they said. I went, oh. And that was my first massive lesson of managing in Asia was how do you listen to the staff? Um, what foreigners may misunderstand is they believe silence is either they don't know or they're idiots or they're stupid. They actually don't know what to say. And actually, it turns out to be, no, they're just not willing to say it to you directly. And it's a mm -hmm. very roundabout. I think this exists across Asia. I'm not going to tell you directly because that's disrespectful, but I'm going to tell you in my way and you better listen to it. I think a lot mm -hmm. of international companies that come into the market don't get this topic. They don't understand how to navigate and understand that the the language and the culture is not it's indirect and in fact it's even down to the language is indirect so asian languages are circular and in fact we don't we're unable to do like future perfect tense does not exist in asian languages you can't you cannot say i will have read harry potter <laughs> next year it, that those words do not exist yeah. however in english we go yeah I can place myself in the future and say, at that point in time, this will be a completed action that the book Harry Potter, I have read it. The only thing we can do in Asian language is say, I will read Harry Potter next year. And understand the indirect around about way that language works and the culture works was a big lesson for me to understand how do I better manage and listen to my team. Lesson number two, actually embrace failure. It's easy to say we embrace failure, but it's important to intentionally build a safe space to fail. Often, leaders jump immediately to problem-solving or defense mode without actually listening and come off making the person who failed feel somewhat attacked. Tiwa compares the alternative of a sports team, specifically a football or a soccer team, and I absolutely love this. Can you really allow your team to fail and really embrace that and say, 
understand it's okay, not the way we expect it, expect it to be, but we'll work on it for the next time. And I think the key point that I would like to make and what I learned along the way was the difference between a working group and the way we were taught to work versus how a sports team is taught to play as a team. And I think this was my big learning was we're taught in the working environment, which, oh my gosh, this project failed. I'm going to talk about it and say why, and you got to tell me. Rather than a sports team, they lose on Sunday. Guess what? They wake up Monday, they start practicing together and working on the following, the next game and learning from it and then fixing things to make sure that they win in the next game. But we don't actually do that as businesses or as mm -hmm. managers or leaders. And I think these are the areas that I started to work on in Thailand of A, listening to the team and then really allowing them to feel free to say, yeah, it didn't work out, boss. Sorry. And I'm like, yeah, I, I know that they didn't intend for that either. Right. Yeah. I love that. I mean, the fact that you call yourself head coach all makes sense, you know, in terms of thinking about yourself as, as teams versus, and I know you make a distinction between teams and working groups as well. Lesson number three, team and working groups. Tiwa makes a differentiation between teams versus working groups and why the former is what we should strive to lead in. And what's funny about running businesses is that you think about a football team, they spend 30 hours a week preparing to play 90 minutes. We as businesses spend 40, 50, 60 hours a week, 70 hours a week playing on the field, but never preparing for it. And it's, it's a massive shift in how we look at our teams. And this is where we talk about working groups versus a team. A team is we come together and we know each player, the position that they play on the field. But when we're a working group, we expect to be responsible for my tasks. I'm going to get my tasks done. And when the project fails, wasn't my problem. They didn't finish their tasks. And we point the finger. So if you think about it, we're talking about Premier League. If I'm, if I'm playing for Liverpool, I'm the striker on the field. If I actually behave the way we behave in business on the field while playing, it would never work. And here's the example. I'm the striker. My job is to kick the ball towards the net. I wait for the midfield to send me the ball. And when it's sent to me, I will kick it towards the goal. Now, if I behave the way we behave in business, I say, I just got my job done. I kicked it towards the goal. I'm going to stand here and wait until the midfield sends me the ball again. Would that team ever win? Hell no. Now hold that thought. Talking to Loud, hosted by Chris Savage, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. On this podcast, Chris Savage, Wistia CEO and loudest talker, takes you inside the minds of entrepreneurs as they share the hilarious, informative, and most challenging aspects of building more human brands. Everything we love here at Billion Dollar Moves. Now, an episode I loved recently was the one with guest Joe LeMay, jiu-jitsu loving entrepreneur and co-founder of rocket boat he talks about how an airplane epiphany took him on a wild ride that started with a shark tank flop but ended with a 50 million dollar exit you know that's our jam listen to it talking too loud wherever you get your podcast and finally we have our recap of the last episode with jamal bujang who was the CEO of government-owned venture firm in Malaysia with 1.5 billion assets under management, responsible for seeding what I would say the first generation of VC funds in Malaysia and building the ecosystem in quite a large way. And of course, is MD of Gobi Partners now, a pan-Asian venture capital firm with 1.2 billion assets under management. Now his lessons are, number one, if you don't have trust, you don't have a deal. 
While my question to JB focused on the dynamics between co-GPs, i.e. when two parties partner to raise a fund, I really think his answer applies to all business partnerships. You know, you can design something that you believe will work the best for both parties, put in every, you know, bell and whistle. But with everything at the end of the day, you know, you don't want a relationship that's guided purely by black and white. You can design something that can work for both parties. But look. At the end of the day, it's all about trust to begin with. Mm. It doesn't matter what economy is gonna you're gonna be sharing between two of you or three of you. It's just in the future, right? It's now. It's how to make things work between you and your partner because you're gonna partner with them for the next ten years. You're basically yeah. married for the next ten years, right? And yeah. what, what what do you have? What do you have? All we have is trust. That's it. Mm. And he should be doing something that you want to do. But he has also expect, expect you to do something that he wants as well, right? So there must be constant, what call it, engagement between the two parties. This, like I said, I think plays a big role in it. You don't want to have a relationship is guided by just black and white yeah. agreement. You can do this. No agreement can cover all this requirement that you want and match with what he wants. Seriously. Lesson number two: boots on the ground. Don't believe everything you see in the media. JB shared about he, how like many others, were cautious about Pakistan at first with the bad reputation the country often gets from the media. However, he took a chance by first attending a conference in Karachi and was absolutely surprised by the opportunity he saw which led to building with Fatima Group, now the Pakistan Fund, led by Gobi. Why don't we just go to Karachi? Have you gone to Karachi? I said, no, none of us has gone to Karachi before. Why don't we just go and maybe we get a better feel about Pakistan, about what's yeah. going on? Uh, if you read about Pakistan, if you have been to Pakistan, what you read in the news is not really that good, right? So we went, we went, and we were totally surprised. We were totally surprised. We were hardly any VCs, foreign, definitely foreign VC. There are only a few, yeah. local, a few local VCs there. Right? When we came and we met that potential company that we invested in, also, also we like this company and all that. And lesson number three, chemistry matters. A more intangible learning was that chemistry matters within a team. You know, the partnership can look great on paper, as I said in point one, but viewing at least a co-GP relationship as one that would last 10 years, the team dynamic needs to really feel right. How do you think about working with someone that actually you mm -hmm. only met uh, through a course, but it wasn't yeah, like your lifetime yeah. friend? How do you think about that? Yeah, it's funny. It's a good thing you asked that as well. Between him and us, there's, like, there's a complete trust between him and us. For that, I'm thankful to God. I think we found a good partner. He treats us as uh, an equal partner, really. Whatever economies that we get from this fund, we split equally. That's how we started off. I think he's very happy with that. And he knows that we trust him as well. And we have people like Tom, who you can easily mix with. And Tom works well with him as well. So, and I got Tariq, uh, is, uh, my, my, my colleague. He clicks very well with Ali as well. He is, he comes from Pakistan, uh, descends as well. So, <laughs> it's all there. So, I think we're just lucky. All right, guys and gals. Well, there you have it. My Bill and Dollar Moves breakdown for the first three episodes of season two. Let me know what you think, what resonated with you. Was there a lesson you picked up that I missed that I should put on the show notes? Uh, hit me up on socials at Sarah Chan Global. And of course, don't forget to subscribe on Bill and Dollar Moves and tell all your friends. See you next week and keep making Bill and Dollar Moves. And thanks so much for tuning in this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow our socials on Sarah Chen Global to get the latest on the show. It would really help me out too if you enjoyed this to rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts and share your favorite episodes with a friend. I'm Sarah Chen Spellings and you've been listening to Bill and Dollar Moves.